Good morning again. Would you turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3? And if you don't have a Bible with you, let me encourage you to grab one of those blue Bibles under the chairs in front of you. And as you're turning there, uh, just a thought to share with you, personal thought. My, um, my mom hosted Thanksgiving dinner at the house I grew up in for 40 years until she turned it over to uh, the Wongs here in New Milford. And so Cedar and I host Thanksgiving um, every year for our family and Cedar's family. And uh, yesterday she sent out the Evite uh, just to let everybody know what time exactly so we don't get all these phone calls. And uh, next step is planning the absolutely ridiculous amount of food that is going to be overflowing from that table for 20-some um, Wongs and Laleems and Maratas to enjoy uh, in a few weeks. Folks, there are so many people who live near us who won't have an obscene amount of food overflowing from their table. There are 20 boxes left in that fellowship hall. We can do this. It's a simple thing. Maybe you can't fill a box with groceries. Maybe you can volunteer your time. We have four days next week when GRC is going to be a distribution site, collection and distribution site for, I believe, 60 churches to come here and grab boxes to give to people who are in their circles of need. We can do this. I would love to walk out of here in an hour and a half and see that wall empty. And we need that wall for coat racks because it's getting cold around here. That's the original thing for that wall. Um, If you can consider that, I figure it's about the cost of that cake you're going to pick up on the way to grandma's from Whole Foods, which is an obscene amount of money, okay? Or a bottle of wine that you'll pick up and bring to your uh, relative's house. Um, 20 boxes of love, maybe even fewer than that. Um, Would you consider helping someone else have a full table for Thanksgiving, just as you and I will? Ephesians chapter 3. This morning, we continue to walk through this letter that the apostle wrote to the church in Ephesus, and the verses we'll look at today and next Sunday shift us from the theme of chapters 1 to 3, position in Christ or identity, to chapters 4 through 6, which are practice, now live in light of that identity in Christ. That's who you are, now live like it. And this transition is a second prayer in the letter. This time, Paul praying that God would give the Ephesians power to know His love. Let's read, starting in verse 14. Listen carefully. These are God's words. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of His glorious riches, He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work in, within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that this prayer would become our prayer. 
We ask that these realities that Paul prays for would be true of us, that we would access the riches that you desire for your people to have. Give us faith to see it and to embrace it and to share it. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. We'll start by talking about prayer before we look at the details of the prayer. Last week, Steve, in his sermon uh, on the first half of chapter 3, pointed out that Paul starts this thought in chapter 3, verse 1, for this reason, I, and then he says, hold on a sec, hold that thought, pause, and he realizes he's got more to say uh, along the lines that he had been writing. And so, in verse 14, this is the restart of his next thought, and those words show up again, for this reason, I pray. For what reason? We have to figure out what Paul's pointing back to, what he's referring back to when he says, for this reason, I pray. And before we look at what Paul's reason is, I want, to ask this, I want us to consider what our own reasons are. What, what would be our verse 14 reason, motivation for praying? And my guess is if we were to collect all of our standard prayer requests in one bucket or, or group them on the screen, my guess is we'd be able to very easily predict 95 plus percent of the prayers that each of us are praying when we do pray because they so often fall into these very obvious categories. Our verse 14 tends to sound like this. For this reason, I have a bad back, I pray, Lord, would you grant me, grant me healing? For this reason, I got SATs next month, I pray, Lord, give me supernatural divine power because I need to get into college. For this reason, my marriage is messed up. I pray, Lord, would you fix my spouse? I have a bill. I have expenses. I need a new job, I pray. The problem is, if that's 95% of our typical prayers, we don't find those kinds of prayers in the pages of Scripture. The the Bible's prayers, the examples of prayer that we come across, don't tend to focus on health or fixing life circumstances. They certainly don't ask for financial blessing. And don't forget that uh, Paul is sitting in a prison in Rome writing uh, this letter and several other letters, and we don't catch a hint of Paul saying, you know, by the way, while you're praying for everything you're praying, get me out of here. Ask God to spring me soon so I can get on with my life. No. We we find him saying in Philippians, the whole palace guard and everyone else has heard about Jesus Christ because I'm chained to this guy and he's going to hear the gospel all day long. He's thinking, I'm here. God has placed me here. How can I use this for ministry? That's not how you and I pray, is it? We've got it all wrong. So what's Paul's reason? Generally, we could easily say, for this reason, is a pointer back to everything he said already. Chapters 1 and 2 and the first half of chapter 3. Specifically, we could say, he's thinking of the very last thing in chapter 2 that he wrote. And we know it because it's the same theme that he gets to in the heart of his prayer. Remember, he started for this reason in chapter 3, verse 1. And then he said, oh, hold on a sec. One moment. We'll come back, and if he had kept going instead of hitting the pause button, what had he just said? 
Chapter 2, verses 20, 20 and, uh, 21, and 22. He was pointing to God building His people into a temple that is fit for a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. For this reason, I pray. And he pushes that theme forward a few more steps. This is the first part of Paul's prayer that the people would more fully experience this indescribable privilege of serving as a dwelling for the eternal God Himself. Every now and then someone says to me, don't you think we need a sermon series on prayer? And my initial response is, I love it. I love the motivation. I love the thinking. I love the strategy because who doesn't need a little kick in the pants in our prayer lives? I love that desire, but my fuller response tends to be a little bit different, tends to go like this. Don't we every Sunday talk about the realities in our personal lives and the realities in the, in the world around us and the realities about God and, and what He has done, how He's intervened in human history. Don't we spend time talking about all of these motivations, all of these realities that provide motivation and, and all the motivation we need to do what Paul does here, which is kneel before the Father in heaven and pray. That posture of humility that's at the core of prayerfulness. You don't have to always be kneeling, but it's that attitude of the heart. It's that posture of humility that comes from regularly looking at our own sin and brokenness. And I hope we're doing that every Sunday. And that leads us to need to pray more in this cycle. That leads us to wrestle with, do I believe that my greatest area of need can only be solved by God Himself, and then prayer and faith access His healing, saving power. Which reminds us, if we need saving, which reminds us if He's holy and awesome and intervening and He's given us His own Son, how sinful and broken we are, which puts us back into that posture of humility. The more you look at the King, the more you realize you're not worthy. And those arrows can go various ways. That's not the only direction it goes in, but... I, I want to say in my fuller response, I think every Sunday, if we're faithfully looking at God's Word, if we're actually open to laying out our own hearts, I think we actually have a mini-sermon series on prayer every single Sunday. And the irony is, the last time somebody mentioned that to me, we were in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, which we spent six weeks on, which was Paul's first prayer in Ephesians. If, if we're looking at Scripture in all of its fullness, if we're catching the message of salvation that we sinful people need, how much more do we need to fuel and motivate our prayers? Sometimes I, I wonder if what people have in mind when they're thinking of a sermon series on prayer is, I, I need a key to unlock a life of prayer, and there is none apart from a gospel renewal cycle like this. Or, or maybe there's this assumption that, hey, if we talk about prayer more, we'll do more praying, and I don't know about you, but that doesn't work in my life. I can talk about it, and maybe I pray a little bit more for a little while, but it, it runs out. It's not a lasting, powerful motivation that changes the way I tend to think, the way I, the way I, I my attitude of selfishness too easily pervades how I live my life. 
the only way to stimulate prayer, I believe, is something like this cycle, which is growing in awareness of your sin, growing in your realization that self-salvation, self-reliance, independence from God cannot solve a single thing, which together cultivates this humility posture, which is at the core of authentic prayerfulness. I don't have, I need what you have, I'm going to keep asking for it boldly, which then fuels your trust that God in Christ alone can make you whole, can heal what's broken in you. The key question is, do you see your desperate need of something outside of yourself, of a rescue offered by a rescuer powerful enough to do it, loving enough to care. In Philip Yancey's book on prayer, he writes this, In my travels, I've noticed that Christians in developing countries spend less time pondering the effectiveness of prayer and more time actually praying. The wealthy, on the other hand, rely on talent and resources to solve immediate problems and insurance policies and retirement plans to secure the future. We can hardly pray with sincerity, give us this day our daily bread when the pantry is stocked with the month's supply of provisions. And if your instinctive thought is, well, I'm not wealthy, Yancey's talking about almost all of us in this room. If we have a roof over our heads, if we know where the next meal is going to come from, we're wealthy. If you're struggling financially, your greatest need is not money. If you're in high school and you're not part of the in crowd, you're not really smart or really athletic or really popular, what you most need is not a change in social status. What you most need is not to find out that you made the team or that you've invited to the right parties Your real need can only be satisfied by the one who created you and longs to redeem you at the cost of the blood of his son. And humility, I don't have, but he does. I need and he longs to give is the first step towards accessing all that God desires for you. On the other hand, if you make a ton of money and you're successful in life and people admire you, Or if you've got it made in school because you're a starter on the team, and in the classroom, everybody looks to you for help. And at parties, it's a success. It's the right in crowd because you're there. Then success hides your true need. Success can deceive you, Socrates, into thinking you have little need which means success can be the most destructive thing that can happen to you and even impact you for eternity. What you most need is at the heart of Paul's prayer here. So secondly, let's start looking at some of the details under the thought of inner being. That uh, is reflected in the first ask that he uh, starts with in verse 16 into verse 17. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Paul prays for the Spirit in your inner being and Christ to dwell in your hearts by faith. 
third and second persons of the Trinity working in parallel. We, we, we might even say working identically, same thing going on. But here's the question. If we would say basic Christianity, every believer in Jesus Christ has Jesus living in your heart. A lot of little kitty songs are about that idea, right? It's true. If, if every believer in Jesus has uh, Jesus living in their heart, why does Paul, writing to these believers in Ephesus, pray that Christ might dwell in their hearts through faith? I don't think he's questioning their salvation. I don't think he's saying there's, there's step one and, there, and there's step two, and if, if you don't have both, you're not a, a, a Christian, you're not a, you're not a follower of Jesus. I think he's saying what you've already experienced can go so much deeper. You can experience so much more fully. It's not just, is Jesus in your heart? It's, are you experiencing the fullness of, uh, fullness of Jesus living in and through you? Jesus may live in your heart, but has he fully settled in? Has he moved in? And when you're talking about the king, his indwelling, settling down in someone's heart necessarily also means submitting to his kingly rule because you don't have the king staying in your, in, in your um, extra bedroom and treat him like any other guest. The, uh, this idea connects back to the, the humble posture that prayer involves, because if you say, move on, I got it, I know these things, Jesus lives in my heart, I trust in God's love, let's go into more advanced things. If you, if you think that way, you're actually showing that you don't really know anything at all about God. If you think your brain, as impressive as it may be, if you think your heart, as full as it may be, can at all know God and everything that He is and everything that He does and all that He promises, you're looking at the wrong deity. You, you think you know God because you've seen a two-dimensional caricature on a piece of paper and you've never encountered in four dimensions, because the spiritual and eternal change everything, you've never encountered His, encountered his majesty and His glory and His holiness, because if you had, you'd realize you know nothing. If you met some career sailor who has spent decades on the high seas, captaining ships, and if you said, hey, so have you sailed most of the oceans in the world? I think this salty old sailor would scoff at you. I think he'd say, I've hardly put a dent in the oceans of the sea because if you encounter something so vast, so immense, that it seems to have no limits, you realize how very little you do know, how very little you've actually experienced to have Jesus live in you and to say, I've been a follower of Jesus for 30, 40 years, but I still have only a kindergartner sense of what it means for him to live in me and live through me. That is the posture of the follower of Christ that then sends you regularly, urgently, and singularly to your knees in humility, asking God who generously provides what you most need. Does Jesus indwell your heart home? Author and professor Don Carson interacts with this idea with this illustration of first-time homeowners who 
buy their starter home, that's what they can afford, and it's a mess. This house needs a ton of work. It needs all kinds of renovations. It's going to take years and a lot of dollars and a lot of effort. Uh, And he says in the same way, Jesus comes into a person's heart through initial saving faith, but when he comes in, he finds it to be a mess. Sure, things are working in this house, but things could fall apart at any minute. And when you start to peel back the layers, open up the drywall, pull back this, 40, uh, this rug that's been lying on the floor for 40 years, you begin to find mold and rot, which is a picture of sin. You wouldn't have seen when you walked in, but underneath the surface, it's there. And as Jesus indwells, as the Spirit indwells, the Spirit's power goes to work healing, renewing, restoring through repentance, through feeding faith. It takes power from God to do this change. But as it happens, the house becomes more and more of a home. It becomes a refuge. It becomes a place of hospitality and true rest. Does Jesus indwell your heart home? Do you give Him free reign to rip out what doesn't belong, what's unhealthy, and use his perfect wisdom to fix exactly as he determines is necessary? Or do you show him to a very nice guest room with a little gift basket, you know, and his own towels, freshly laundered, and say, make yourself at home, mikasa sukasa, and then treat him like a guest who's going to leave one day, as long as he doesn't disrupt your life, your agenda, your schedule, he can hang around all he wants. It's not much different than the guy who lives three doors down. You don't really know that well. You're not friends, but you're so glad he, as a police officer, parks his cruiser in his driveway every single night because the burglars are going to pick a different neighborhood. Nice to have him around. Nice to have Jesus in your home. Is that what it looks like for Jesus to indwell? Compare this picture to what Paul writes in a parallel passage in Colossians chapter 3, where he says to this different church, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. This ruling and dwelling is at the level of your inner being. Do you ever pay attention to that level of your personhood? You look in the mirror at at least once a day. I I don't spend any more time than that. There's nothing to look at. Just glance in there, make sure hair's not everywhere, make sure the the, buttons are on the right alignment, and get going. But when you look in the mirror, what do you notice? Your hair, your clothes, maybe a few blemishes, a few wrinkles, a few parts that you wish weren't there, but you will never notice, just because you glanced, your inner being, where all of this stuff should be happening. Unless you carve out time from your busy, busy schedule, unless you very intentionally look at your heart, let the light of Christ expose what is ugly that you don't want to look at, unless you take the time to listen intently to the voice of God through His Word, you will never notice your inner being. It takes ruthless elimination of noise, getting rid of the excesses of 
way too much TV and way too much time on, 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 on your phone or on your tablet, browsing social media, shopping, dreaming about the next vacation, the next restaurant, the next adventure. That can only change if your roots, that's where we're going last, are drawing from the appropriate source. In the second half of verse 17, Paul says this, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, dot, 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 which sets up the main part of his prayer requests. And we're going to unpack this in detail next Sunday, but for now, notice this simple, high-level summary of what he's about to pray. Paul is not first praying that these Ephesian believers would love God more. It's not what he prays for. It'd be a good prayer request. It's noble. We all need to love God more. That's not what he prays for because he realizes there's something more necessary, something more foundational, something that has to come first for there to be any chance of salvation, any chance of accessing these promises of God for his people. And it's this, if I can paraphrase Paul, I pray that you would know Christ's love for you. That's the essence of his great prayer here in Ephesians 3. I pray that you would know Christ's love for you. Would you humor me? Let's put on our three-year-old glasses and think of a a scene from life through uh, the perspective of a toddler. Okay, let's say you have one of those at home, and you bring her to a dinner party, and she knows nobody. You're there mingling with your friends, but here's what you tell her. You say, you need to tell Miss Gabby, who I work with over here, that you love her. And she looks at you with that look that's like, now why would I do that? I don't know her. And there's no better logic that you could wield to bend the iron will of this three-foot-nothing little human being. It, it, It makes no sense to her. I don't know her. But if in the next instant your little three-year-old spies grandpa across the room, busy chatting with other adults. She doesn't ask for permission. She doesn't wait her turn. She runs right into his arms, and he stops what he's doing immediately, and he gets a big hug and a kiss, and I love you, grandpa. Why? Because it's so very natural to love someone whom you know loves you back. And the flip side is just as true. It's it's so very unnatural to just love someone with whom you have no relationship. If I said to you, you need to love God, some of you wouldn't care because you don't want to love God. You're here in church. Somebody brought you. You're honoring a family member maybe, or maybe you're checking out Christianity. You're not quite sure what to make of of this group of people on Sunday mornings, but you don't necessarily care, and and you don't necessarily pay attention to the biblical truth that we're talking about this morning, that God loves you no matter what, who you are, what you've done. Others of you, if I said, you need to love God, you'd say, I'm trying, (laughs) Um, I, I want to love God, I do love God, but there are plenty of times in my life when I fall short, I'm not as consistent. I, uh, if, if you know your inner being uh, uh, pretty well, you say, well, I, there are times when 
idols of the heart mean I'm giving too much love to someone or something other than God, and I know that that's wrong and it's sinful, but I'm trying. And sometimes when you fail, you beat yourself up. The only way to develop real and lasting love for God is by first realizing and trusting in His love for you in Christ. And that's not just a one-time thing. That's a, a well of grace to which we need to return for nourishment and refreshment and life itself. This fits the biblical pattern. This idea, this truth from Hebrews 12 that God is the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the pioneer. He's the initiator. He is the source. And so later on in Ephesians chapter 4 at the end, Paul says this, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Forgive one another. That's a hard thing to ask, Paul. How am I going to do that? Paul says, you have your example, just as in Christ God forgave you, and you have power that comes. Because if you've been forgiven, you now have power to forgive others. In the very next verses, chapter 5, he adds this, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as, there's that phrase again, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But Paul, that, that, that's a lot to ask of me, to love. Do you know how costly love is, Paul? And he says, I just told you, <laughs> love how? Just as Christ loved you. How did He love you? He gave Himself up for you. He laid down His life for you. He died for you. If you say, I have nothing with which to share, uh, I have nothing to share with other people, Paul would be the first to say, you, you don't. There's nothing in there. <laughs> but God pours His love into you to the measure of all the fullness of God is how our prayer ends today. And all he's asking is not that you reinvent the wheel, not that you figure out something uh, that's a secret, some, some rocket science. No, no, God's simply saying, with what you've been given to overflowing, share with other people. Let it leak out of your life. Let it naturally, if you're filling yourself up, it's just gonna overflow. Let it happen. Pray that it would. Pay attention. John puts it this way, we love because He first loved us. That was our wedding verse 23 years ago. How can anyone love another person, a fellow sinner, only because God first loved us and showed us what love really is? The humble posture that fuels prayer, that accesses chapter 1, verse 3, every spiritual blessing in Christ that's how he started this letter. It comes when you're rooted and established, chapter, uh, verse 17 of our prayer today. It comes when you're rooted and established, not in your own abilities, not in self, even in your noble and honorable attempts to love God. No, it comes when you are rooted and established in the love of God for you, demonstrated in the person of Jesus Christ. Do you doubt that you could be loved so purely and so completely? If you don't doubt, chances are you think too highly of yourself. 
If you do doubt, then receive my prayer as I echo the prayer of the Apostle Paul. That I would pray that God would give you power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ for you and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Let's pray. Lord, give us power to know this. Give us spirit power in our inner being to know this to be true, more true than gravity, more true than two plus two equals four, more true than any reality that we stand upon and take for granted, Lord. May we know that because of the forgiveness that Christ offers, you love us perfectly. And we lack nothing. Show us, Lord, the dimensions, how wide and long and high and deep is that love. Give us minds and hearts that are so eager and even desperate to know these dimensions, to study it, to turn it over in our hands like a beautiful diamond, like a piece of art, and to marvel at what you have provided. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.